The Major League Baseball cheating scandal sending shockwaves around the world. The owner of the Houston Astros fired the team's general manager and manager after an investigation found that the Astros cheated by stealing signs during their World Series championship. These days, it seems like the Houston Astros are basically priors of the game. Outcasts. Scoundrels. I guess you could include the Red Sox in all of that as well, though they didn't get in quite as much trouble. Anyway, that's not really the point. That's just what we call the lead, where I try and find a clever way of setting up the story. The point is that, okay, yeah, sure, what the Astros and Red Sox did was not cool. But by no means is it unprecedented. Recent stories and commentary have pointed out that sign stealing is about as old as baseball, which is probably true. I mean, I can't say I know who invented sign stealing, but we do know for a fact that it at least dates back to 1900. Specifically, September 17, 1900. It started out as just a regular baseball game between the Reds and Phillies. But then things got weird. Really weird. By the end of the game, the fans in attendance retreated to a bizarre confrontation, thanks mostly to a guy named Pierce Childs. And if you know anything about Pierce Childs, which, the more I think about it, hopefully you don't, because that would kind of defeat the purpose of this whole episode. But anyway, if you know anything about him, then you know that pulling a stunt like that was a classic Pierce Childs thing to do. His whole life, or at least a significant portion of it, seemed to be centered around duping people and just being a menace to society. And I'll explain all of that after I do a shameless plug. Right, so here we go. You've probably seen a meme or even heard a joke about how everyone has a podcast now. I mean, not literally everyone does, but there's still lots of podcasts. Thousands, probably. Which I actually think is pretty cool, because podcasting is a great way for brands, artists, or anyone trying to connect with an audience to, uh, well, connect with an audience. But knowing where to start can seem daunting. What equipment do you need? How do you get it on Spotify, etc., etc.? And then analysis paralysis happens, and the podcast never even gets started. Common story. Small League Productions can help. We can help you take your idea and make a handcrafted podcast. From consultation to editing to sound design, we can be involved as much or as little as you need. There's no package deal or subscription or anything like that. It's a personalized service that meets your specific needs. At least when it comes to podcasting. We can't give you a haircut or fix your relationships, but we got the podcasting covered. So if you like how that sounds, check out the website at smallleaguesdude.com, also linked in the show notes, and drop me a message there. Hopefully, we can create something together. Okay, now on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called, What's the Use? Webster's Dictionary defines con man simply as a person who tricks other people in order to get their money. Also, we can probably broaden the definition to include people who cheat in very sophisticated ways to achieve other ends, like, say, winning a baseball game. By either definition, I think Pierce Childs meets the definition of a con man. This was never more clear than that game I mentioned way back in 1900. Now, for the sake of reference, the game itself really didn't matter. 
the Phillies had played well, but they were too far back. You know, they were still 10 games back, had a good season. The Reds were just completely out of it, so it had no bearing on the pennant. That's Bob Lemoyne, a writer and researcher for the Society of American Baseball Research, known as Sabre, and the co-author of the book, Baseball's First Nine. Bob's an expert on 19th century baseball, and granted, 1900 was technically the 20th century, but Bob's research on this particular game is too valuable to get bogged down by semantics. In summary, the Phillies won both games, because it was a doubleheader, 4-2 and 4-1 respectively, dropping the Reds to a not-awesome record of 53-66, and while hardly improving their own standing in the National League. As Bob alluded to, they were okay, 62-55, and but they were still 10 games back from the Brooklyn Dodgers, who were actually called the Superbas back then. Also, this was the same day Queen Victoria of England dissolved Parliament and issued the Proclamation of the Commonwealth of Australia, which made them a country, basically. Now, the interesting thing about these events is that they bear no consequence whatsoever on this story, aside from helping me illustrate that this game between two mediocre baseball teams was small potatoes in the grand scheme of world history. Even still, the game made headlines the next day. There was considerable commotion among the players and coaches, wrote the Philadelphia Inquirer. And for that, we have our con man Pierce Childs to thank. But before we get into what happened exactly, I think we need to do a bit of a character profile. The Sabre bio, which was written by Ron Schuler, he, he actually has a good quote in there, and he says that Childs was one of the most slippery, elusive, historical characters Major League Baseball has ever produced. I think that pretty much sums it up. He was a scoundrel through and through. That's a pretty powerful statement for a guy who played a whopping two seasons in the big leagues. But Pierce Childs made the most of his time. Born in 1867 in Henry County, Missouri, Childs started playing baseball probably in his late teens. Also, writing for the Society of American Baseball Research, Ron Schuler, who Bob just mentioned, uncovered some pretty disturbing things about his early playing days. Bouncing around from town to town in the minor leagues, Childs had several run-ins with the law. For example, the Los Angeles Times reported in 1896 that he was wanted in Missouri for having sex with a 16-year-old girl, a.k.a. statutory rape, or as they called it back then, constructive rape. Kind of different, but not really. This dude was a scumbag. But perhaps a clever scumbag, as he apparently heard that the authorities were after him, He'd return to Phoenix for his mother's funeral, but once he heard the cops were going to issue an arrest warrant, he skipped town and went back to playing baseball. I don't know how you manage to elude capture and play professional baseball at the same time, but I'm assuming it takes some pretty dark skills to pull off. As a ball player in the 1890s, his behavior was actually more rule rather than exception. According to Schuler's research, it was an era where players routinely spiked one another, shoved umpires, and fans would throw beer bottles at players from opposing teams. In previous episodes, you might remember that I've touched on how crazy of an era this was for baseball, so maybe this shouldn't totally be a surprise. But these days, where players get in trouble for not jogging fast enough and flipping bats, or any other breach of unwritten rules, it's still pretty jarring to read. Actually, Childs was a teammate of Big Ed Delahanty, who you may recall from episode 1 as a slugger who drunkenly fell off the bridge into Niagara Falls and died. Or maybe he was murdered. I think the jury's still out on that one. So yeah, that's what we're dealing with here. Now, Childs was especially known to taunt his opponents, often screaming, What's the use? when they popped out to him. Thus, he got the nickname Pierce, What's the Use, Childs? 
That's sort of a crappy nickname, but that's fine because, I'll reiterate it, I don't think he was a great guy. Even so, he finally made it to the big leagues in 1899, and despite having a pretty good rookie season where he played 97 games and batted 320, by the turn of the century, he was more of a player-slash-coach for the Phillies. During the 1900 season, he appeared in only 33 games and was relegated mostly to coaching third base. To me, that seems like a demotion, though you still have to wave around the runners and high-five people after home runs, but it still seems kind of boring. Childs, however, managed to make it not so boring. At some point between 1899 and 1900, he joined forces with another obscure player named Morgan Murphy, a backup to the backup catcher with a career batting average of 225. Together, the two of them would orchestrate one of baseball's most complex and notorious sign-stealing scandals. They had this whole thing planned out with putting a box underneath the third base coach's box and Morgan Murphy, who is this essentially third-string backup catcher who never played, sitting out there with a spyglass and capturing the signs. And early on, he would move curtains around to relay the signals or things like that. And then they got more elaborate, and they put in this conjunction box underneath the third-base coach's box, and he would buzz in <laughs> to, to Pierce Childs what the, what the pitch selection was. Keep in mind, this was 1900. It would still be another 25 years before most Americans had electricity in their own homes. And these guys were using electronics to steal signals from opposing teams. As legend has it, the scheme was born one day while Charles and Murphy were at a racetrack betting on horses. From their vantage point in the stands, they could actually see a Little League game being played in a field across the way. Using a spyglass, Charles could actually read the signals from the catcher. And thus, a plan was put into motion. And a pretty transparent plan, as it turns out. Everybody knew something was going on because the Washington Times in late 1899, and this is 1899 after the Phillies have led the National League in batting average hits, doubles, and runs. They were 58 and 25 at home and 36 and 33 on the road. So people knew things were going on here that were not right. Bob's right about the team not hitting well on the road. While most teams historically have played better at home, splits like that are suspicious. Though it should be pointed out that they did at least try to cheat on the road as well. Ned Hanlon of Brooklyn noticed that Murphy rented an apartment in one of those high-rise apartments in Brooklyn, and he would kind of sit there at the window. <laughs> you know? And so he said, so Hanlon sends a couple of players and they barge into the into the apartment, and there he is. He's uh, holding up a newspaper, either vertically or horizontally, sending out messages that could be seen on the field and all that. So Hanlon starts to realize what's going on, and you have these long delays in games while they come out to the mound to discuss things, and they're just screwing with his head now. They're, they're just changing the, the signals and confusing them and all that to, to try to have an upper edge there. So it was kind of interesting because now players spent time watching Murphy watching the game. So now we've got this whole espionage and counterintelligence operation going on here. In one corner, you've got Childs, Murphy, and the rest of the Phillies, and in the other, you've got basically everyone else. So people were rightfully suspicious, but to this point, nothing had been done about it. Also keep in mind, this is a Phillies team who in 1899 had won 95 games, but still finished in third place in the National League, 
It's hard to know exactly how much of a difference sign-stealing actually made, but at the very least it wasn't hurting them. And they still needed a competitive edge to overtake Brooklyn, who had won 101 games the year before. And so you get into 1900, and the season goes along, and the, the Phillies still are a pretty good pretty good hitting team. So later on in that season, the Cincinnati Reds are coming in in September, and the manager of the Reds has been tipped off about what's going on here. So he goes out and anybody listening to this can Google an image of the Baker Bowl and you'll see in, in that old stadium, the clubhouses were in center field. So you have Morgan Murphy sitting out there with his spyglass catching the signs and relaying them in. The Reds manager didn't know though, how in the world is he doing this? And he goes and he looks into the clubhouse and he sees all these wires running everywhere. And so he figures out there's something going on here. So during this September 17 game, Tommy Corcoran, one of the Reds players, realizes uh, what's been happening with, with this child's twitchy leg over there in the coach's box. And so Corcoran is also coaching for the Reds. So he goes out to the third base box and he just starts scratching around in the dirt a little more, a little more, a little more. And so by the third inning, he has uncovered this junction box that has these wires attached to it and by this time the Phillies realize what's going on somebody says holy crap this is not right and so the groundskeeper runs out and actually brings a policeman I guess with him for goodness sake and they go out there and they try to stop him but it's too late and there's this box that's uncovered and so everybody is just standing around and I love the quote that comes up here one of the Reds coaches, Arlie Latham, this is this is a quote you would definitely not hear today, where after everybody's quiet and they're standing around looking at this thing, he says, ha, what's this? An infernal machine to disrupt the noble National League? And, you know, it's just, you can't make this stuff up. But the umpire simply looks at it and says, okay, back, back to the mines, gentlemen, just back to play. Let's go. And nothing was done about it. What's the use, right? I mean, all that spying and counter-espionage and wires being ripped out of the ground, and the umpire just says, back to the mines, gentlemen. Though if it's some consolation, the Phillies missed the playoffs, and Childs would never play a big league game after 1900. Which brings us to the next part of this whole saga. Something even stranger. Despite a subpar 1900 season, when he hit a dismal 216, Childs was still signed to play with the Phillies in 1901, and would likely have resumed his role as a bench player and base coach and possible sign stealer if not for the fateful midwinter carnival in El Paso, Texas. Complete with a volcanic eruption simulation, a flying lady, an electric fountain, and daily bullfights, people came from far and wide to the carnival, and Childs was among them. And so it was on February 15, 1901, Childs, along with a fellow named D.B. Sherwood, were on a train headed to the carnival when they got a not-so-bright idea. Seeing a young fellow by the name of Benjamin Henry, they figured they had an easy target from whom to swindle some money. According to Schuler's research on Sabre, here's what went down. Sherwood approached Henry and struck up a friendly conversation. Soon after that, Childs, pretending to be a stranger, just quote-unquote happened to come by, asking them for a match to light his pipe. Sherwood and Childs then had a pretend argument over who could open the box of matches, which, I don't know, might have been hard to open. Whatever the case, it was all a pretext, as they made some sort of bet where Sherwood said he'd bet Childs a dollar for every dollar in his pocket if he, meaning Henry, could open it. Henry, a recently discharged soldier, opened the box with relative ease and thus winning the bet. 
Chiles said he wouldn't pay though, asserting that Henry had no money. Which sounds like a jerky thing to do, but it was all part of a ruse. Henry objected, saying that he had $95, which was what Sherwood and Chiles needed to hear. Somehow, in all the ensuing chaos, Chiles snatched the $95. And in case you're wondering, $95 in 1900 would be worth closer to three grand today thanks to inflation. So no small amount of money. Now, if this scheme sounds stupid or half-baked, it's because it was. Charles and Sherwood didn't even make it off the train before Henry found the conductor, who somehow notified the police. And before long, both Charles and Sherwood were in police custody. Now, we don't have a whole lot of details on everything that happened next. But according to a 1958 issue of Baseball Digest, we know that Charles appealed to his friend Billy to bail him out. In a letter full of grammatical errors and misspellings, he claimed that Henry lied about the $95. The letter proved to be pretty fruitless, though, and Childs ultimately pled guilty to theft. He was sentenced to two years at the Huntsville Convict Farm in Texas, and as a newspaper in El Paso reported with some snark, Childs will be allowed to work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and the work will be so different from that of last year that it will be an interesting novelty. Such is the fate of Pierce Childs. How this man ever got on the Philadelphia team is a mystery. He was run out of Kansas and Texas years ago for serious crimes, and now gets the two-year trick for working in a flim-flam game. That voice, by the way? Yeah, that was me. I'm sure you could tell, but I was just messing around with the effects in Adobe. Just wanted to try it. Anyway. While they got the details of his conviction right, the part about his fate didn't really pan out. Again, details here are pretty fuzzy, and people smarter than me have researched this and come to mostly dead ends. But... It is a known fact that Pierce Childs escaped prison before his sentence was over. He served about 16 months of the two-year sentence. Whatever the case, he busted out, and while on the lam, he managed to squeeze in some baseball. He eventually resurfaced in Mississippi and played minor league ball there for a bit before being signed by Portland of the Pacific League in 1903. However, he just couldn't stay out of trouble. They kicked Childs off the team after he beat up a woman. Apparently, he punched her in the face hard enough to give her a black eye and knock out some teeth as well. Even still, he turned up in a semi-pro league in California, though there's no word if he implemented any kind of sign-stealing ploy. Wouldn't surprise me if he did. At this point, the trail went cold for years. It was probably easy to accept that Childs just faded away into obscurity. But again, researchers at Sabre came through. This time, some diligent research by Peter Morris unearthed that Childs was likely living under various aliases such as Nugent, N.B., and Newton Baron Childs, which really makes me question his judgment even more. I don't know, just seems like a weird name. Though a nickname like What's the Use is also weird, so there's that. According to Morris's research, he was living in California as a salesperson of some sort, and a death certificate for N.B. Childs in 1933 would suggest that that's when Pierce died. If this N.B. Childs character was in fact Pierce Childs, he would have been about 66 when he died. Then again, that could have been someone else entirely. Maybe Pierce fled the country, or played baseball under another alias, or maybe both. I guess no one really knows for sure, though I'll defer to Morris. One thing that's certain is that Childs was a pretty awful guy. A lifelong cheater and thief, he was also wanted for rape and punched another woman in the face, and that's just the malfeasance we know about. With a track record like that, it seems kind of weird to me that he's mostly vilified for simply stealing signs. 
Though sadly, it still kind of parallels how we think about sports more than a century later. I, I guess people want to feel that the games are on the up and up. And they'll, they'll live with, they'll tolerate an athlete that makes a major domestic incident or something like that. And there's always forgiveness, but, you know, you break, break the rules of the game. The game isn't fair. You know, that's not right. I'm sure smarter people than me have tried to answer these questions, and it still doesn't make any sense. So, what's the use? Was that a cheesy way to end this episode? Anyway, a big thanks to Bob Lemoyne for his contributions to this episode. Be sure to look him up at Sabre so you can read all the bios he's written and check out some of his other writing. And that should do it for this episode of Obscure Ball. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll get a heads up when there's a new episode. Until then. 